Hi, Guy here and welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Uh, my guest in this episode is the multi-talented Paul Blanchard. Uh, not only is Paul a PR guru, he's also an author, media commentator and speaker and the creator of the hugely successful Media Masters podcast in which he speaks to people right at the top uh, of the media business. And as well as his two decades working in the media industry, Paul has had a varied career. He's created and sold an IT business, also served as a local councillor and stood for Parliament in a, a politics career that lasted over 10 years. Well, in this episode, hear how Paul started the Media Masters podcast and how it evolved into the format it takes today. He also tells me how he bounced back from some pretty serious challenges uh, during his career. And he tells me why an incident with a lobster in France changed his diet forever. I thought it'd be great to start by asking you uh, about the podcast, because that's how I know uh, about you, and that's how many people know about you, but through the, the Media Masters podcast, where you interview people right at the top of the media game. So I'm, I'm intrigued to find out, and I'm sure many people are, about how you got started doing that podcast. Why did you decide to do that? And how did that it, get started? It's been a long, it's been a long trek. Um, I... Um, I started it about three and a half, four years ago um, because, I mean, I, the variety of reasons, really. But one of the things is, I, I, you know, I do like talking to people. And, uh, you know, I had a few people, um, I had a few of our clients that we'd started to organize podcasts for. And I realized how popular they were getting. I was joke with clients and say, it's a bit, they're a bit like flared trousers, you know, they're coming back into fashion because <laughs> they were all the rage back in the day. Um, and then they went a bit naff for a few years where there was a lot of like home produced podcasts in, you know, done in bedrooms and things like that. And then, and then now, you know, um, business has, uh, has got onto the, cottoned onto the idea of, you know, these are great thought leadership um, avenues, really. You know, if you have a podcast, then it's an extra thing that you do and it makes you more noteworthy as a thought leader and so on. So I thought if I'm going to be advising our clients to to be doing podcasts, then I'm, I need to kind of know what I'm doing myself, really. So I thought, well, I, I know five or six interesting people, reasonably big names, and let's, let's set up a podcast and, and get it done, really. So I... Um, um, I did that, and I thought, I thought well, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. I still don't know, really. But uh, <laughs> we'll give it a go and learn learn as we go. Um, so the first incarnation of it was called Media Focus. Mm. And uh, we did a weekly podcast where we... Um, we got three guests on every week and then we discussed three topics. So it was a bit like the kind of media show, you know, like Radio 4. Mm. Um, and to be honest, it was it was a... They were great and really enjoyable, but there was so much logistics involved in getting three guests to the studio, finding out three topics that they could all say something on, because usually one guest wanted to talk about one particular subject and then had nothing to say on the other two. And mm. you ended up doing a lot of the same type of stuff, like, you know, on the BBC and blah, blah, blah. And it also, it was getting the date quite quickly. I mean, you know, I love Wake Up to Money, but on the other hand, you know, I don't want to listen to Wake Up to Money from three weeks ago, but no. or even yesterday. <laughs> I only want to listen to today's. So I started to think, well, uh, you know, maybe we need to create some evergreen content. So I then started to do what I considered to be a kind of one-off monthly special where, and we called it Media Masters. And it was a bit of a, it was meant to be a one strand of, of the, the Media Focus podcast that, you know, once every four or five weeks, I'd do a one-to-one -one interview. And, you know, th that would be put up then. It would be a bit more evergreen content. And the thing is, after sort of three or four months of doing this, I realized once I'd looked at 
the statistics that 90% of the people listening to the podcast were, were listening to these one-to-one -one interviews. Mm. And to be honest, the first thought was, was what a dream they are to organise, because to get one person in one room at a certain place is dead easy, mm. especially when you're asking them open questions like, tell them about, you know, um, tell us your life story and blah, blah, blah. But the sheer logistics of getting three people in to talk about three topics that week, it was a total nightmare. And I thought, wow, I'm putting in all this effort, uh, all this nightmarish effort with all these logistics to just get 10% of the traffic when this easy thing to do, which is actually quite enjoyable, is getting the lion's share of traffic it, it literally was a no-brainer at that point so we rebranded the whole podcast media masters and it's a weekly interview with people at the top of the media game and, and i do them in bunches actually i mean i um i kind of record seven or eight of, of them and then forget about them for a month <laughs> or so so there's, there's all we call it the hopper we i i always feel a little bit uncomfortable if there's more than or the fewer than sort of three or four in the hopper because it means if you know i get busy or whatever i'm going to run out this is uh, in the, so in the far, bank in reserve happened. you mean in the hopper yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> well it, the beauty of the beauty of it is is because we try not to make it topical about that week's news um, you know, I can interview someone um, and then it doesn't matter whether it comes out three or four weeks later. Um, but actually guests don't realise that if they do make topical references, even though they don't know it as they're saying it, I already know in the recording that that means that they've inadvertently brought themselves forward in the hopper. Um, <laughs> so if they'll talk about, you know, what Trump did last week, for example, that I think, all oh, right, I'm going to have to release this next week because I can't hang on to it for a month because by then... Trump will have offended a lot of different people and everyone <laughs> will have moved on from that story. Um, particularly if it's a bit of a long comment as well, because you can't cut it. Mm. Some people like I'm doing right now go on a long, uninterrupted <laughs> 10 minute monologue and you can't find any edit points. So there you go. It's an edit point. Well, fortunately for, for me, I tend to edit as little as possible. So, <laughs> so that helps me. You've had some great names on there, haven't you? Like Mark Thompson and you've had Lionel Barber from the Financial Times. And most recently, the one I enjoyed most recently was uh, the Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. I mean, you've, how's that developed in terms of getting those big names on the podcast? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I agree. It, it, it's almost like rungs on a ladder, really. We're getting bigger and bigger names all the time. And I think part of it is, you know, Lionel Barber looks at other big names that have been on. I think, wow, if we've had those guys, they then kind of give it a mark out of 10 as to, you know, whether it's worth going on. And they, it's a peer thing, really. Um, I'm quite pleased because sort of two years ago I would I would email someone like Lionel Barber and you know chance my arm and say you know do you want to do you want to come on yeah, it'd be great and and, and Lionel was very kind uh, in his reply and said uh, well thank you for the invite I'm flattered but you know no and, and I don't blame him really because we were an obscure podcast then and you know he probably looked at the other guests and so on and thought why should I bother and what's interesting now is we're, we're now getting inbound requests from corporate PR departments asking if CEOs of, uh, of big organisations can come on. And I, I, I have a wry smile to myself when they come <laughs> in because uh, they've previously turned me down. So Lionel turned me down two years ago and then sort of five months ago, the FT press office contacted us and said, oh, would you like our editor on? Lionel Barber. And I'm like, yes, yes, I would. Um, so so that, that was quite good. So yeah, there's been there's been about 20 people on recently that were, were, were previously people who turned us down. Mm. So I, I am aware we're kind of um, climbing the ladder, as it were. And it's great as well to have people on with big followings because they drive traffic to the podcast as well. Mm. Every, every kind of person I get that has 
Uh, I mean, Perez Hilton came on maybe even a year ago, and he has like 8 million followers on Twitter, <laughs> something insane. And when he tweets sort of two or three times that he's been a guest on this podcast, and here it is, I think we got like 40-odd thousand new listeners from four tweets, of which about a 1,000 have stayed on. Now, I consider that really good. Mm. That must be nice when you get that kind of uh, traction from one guest. You do. And you know what? I genuinely learn a lot from them. I consider it to be an, an incredible privilege. And I, you know, I've asked this on the podcast many times about what is journalism, but I suppose you could call what I do amateur journalism in a sense. It's, I always say to the, the guests, it's, it's more Parkinson than Paxman. I'm not there to hang them out to dry. You know, I don't, I don't overly flatter them, but it is meant to be a positive interview where I'm mm. interested in them as a person and their journey and what they're doing and what's on their to-do list and their views. It's not like you're evil, you, you know, tell us how do you defend this, that kind of thing. So I think there's a certain element of flattery mm. being asked to come on. People like to talk about themselves you know, like I'm doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. There is there is something inbuilt in most of us that we'd like being asked to talk about ourselves for a period of time. Absolutely, but I think I think one of the other things is, um, as well as my kind of Parkinson style, as in not not antagonistic, I mm. deliberately try not to ask them about that week's news because I don't want it to date. Mm. You know, I learned that with Media Focus that I, you, no one wants to watch a news program from three weeks ago. Mm. So. You know, um, like I had Alistair Campbell on it three years ago, and a lot of the stuff that I asked him, I'd say 95% of it is still relevant now as it was then, because it's mm. about how did you get into journalism, tell us about Iraq, tell us about your relationship with Tony, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and there might have been a couple of questions about how do you think Gordon Brown's doing as prime minister, or it might have been David Cameron at that point. And yes, that's dated, of course. But other than that, it's largely the same thing. I mean, bizarrely, Linton Crosby is still one of our most popular podcasts. Mm. I don't know how Google's SEO works, but when he came on, he was the first kind of big leap that we had where he, the only ever interview he'd done was like a five-minute radio interview for some Australian radio show like years earlier. And then through a mate of a mate who put in a good word for me, they said, oh, yeah, Paul's a good lad. It'll be all mm. right. And, of course, on that that kind of one-line reference, he then said, okay, I'll come on. <laughs> uh, and I got him in the studio for an hour. And it was incredibly fascinating. We got, you know, I think we had, even then we had like 80, 80 90,000 listens. And it still gets about 500 new listens a week because people think, who is this guy? Mm. You know, what, 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 what is his power in the Conservative Party? What is he like? And there's, I think for me that you can't really get to know someone in a podcast that lasts about 10 minutes because yeah. you end up looking for news lines or, you know, they go through the standard three or four anecdotes they've got. So my my goal is is you know if you're geeky enough to listen to a media podcast then <laughs> frankly you want it to go into a bit of depth and if you, you know i have a few listeners that say i never listen to your podcast in one go because i want to throw myself under a train it's that long <laughs> but i do listen to it across two or three runs mm. now i'm fine with that mm. i think that's how a lot of people listen to podcasts now isn't it you listen to it over two or three goes uh, but in terms of now your your day job as well because obviously your day job is is pr particularly for CEOs how much of that how much of your day job are you doing now or how much of that is taken up by the doing the podcast so we have a full-time uh, we have a full-time team doing podcasts here in the business so two people I have an audio engineer uh, and I have a podcast producer so we produce about 15 podcasts for clients ourselves so we're not a mm. podcasting company but it's it's an important part of sometimes when a client comes to us and they say i want to be a thought leader in what i'm doing i'll say well rather than us just merely 
pitching you into magazines, newspapers, and on other people's podcasts. Let's also get you presenting your own podcast in your industry and make mm. it sound like a Radio 4 program with a professional website. And frankly, it's a positioning exercise. They might only have 10,000 listeners, but it's more about them being seen to be the arbiter, to be the presenter rather than a, a kind of jobbing guest, as it were. So the, it doesn't actually take that much time because, um, you know, I once we've decided that we're going to have a guest on, and a lot of my team suggest ideas and I come up with names and, and a lot of people, as I say, pitch to come on. And, um, you know, everything is kind of the team organised in terms of their logistics, my diary. You know, we get the guests, the travel and all of that. And then the, my podcast producer, she she drafts an intro and then she suggests five or six questions. They're more like I try not to look at them because I think one of the things what I personally like about the podcast, even if I do say so myself, is um <laughs> It is a real conversation. I've been on like shows like LBC sometimes where the guest is, the, the interview is just kind of working through a bullet point list of questions and they're not really having a, they're not really engaging. So I thought, I'm not going to do that. Mm. I'm going to listen to this person and then that often drives the next question. Um, but she does give me five or six lines that are in front of me, like, you know, don't forget to ask Les Hinton what Rupert Murdoch was like. Mm. Um, <laughs> all of that kind of thing. I, I remember I had Mark Thompson on. And uh, he's, I've known Matt for a little bit. Obviously, he was at the BBC, and now he's at the New York Times. Mm. And I, I'd see him for coffee every so often. I said, will you come on? And he said, yeah, no problem. So he comes on. And we got chatting about X, Y, and Z. And this is this is the flip side to the the, the coin in terms of the lack of structure and the, the lack of professionalism. Is uh, We had a great podcast. It came out, and then we it was, it, was, uh, it was fantastic. About deal done. We then got a load of grief and emails and press inquiries saying, you know, why didn't you ask him about Jimmy Savile? You know, he was director mm. general during a lot of that period. Um, did he ask you to sign the ND, an NDA? Did he did, did he make it a prerequisite that you couldn't you couldn't discuss it for, as, for him to come on? And none of that was true. The reason why I didn't ask him about Savile is we got distracted talking about iPlayer. Mm. Uh, and then we had a great chat, and then he left. And I went to my producer, then I went, oh, shoot, I, I forgot to ask him about all of that Savile stuff. Mm. And, you know, I, I plumb forgot. Mm. So, you know, sometimes it works to my advantage and sometimes it doesn't. But that's a conversation. Yeah. I want to ask you a bit about your uh, your other hat, you know, your, your PR. And I love that I wanted to ask you particularly about the fact that on you describe yourself as conciliary uh, to global CEOs. Now, I'm guessing, are you is that a, a Godfather reference? Yes. <laughs> are you a big Godfather fan? Are you the Tom Hagen then to the uh, these bosses, Don Corleone? Is that how you see yourself? Well, he survived all three movies, even though he wasn't in the third one. He was. They they made a reference that he was alive and running some other operation. Um, yeah, I think. I, I, what I think I'm trying to say in one word there is that I I stand beside our global CEOs as their trusted advisor and and confidant. I mean, the, when I first decided to focus on what I call CEO PR um, about eight or nine years ago and stopped doing corporate PR. Um, it, this wasn't. This was quite unique, really, and and most people, um, most people kind of thought there was that making the CEO more visible was part of the overall corporate PR strategy, but as, as like one piece in the jigsaw. But to be honest, they never actually did it. They just saw it as, oh, you know, we'll get the press releases out and we'll do this, that, and the other, and we'll get a few little speaking ops two or three times a year to keep the CEO happy, and you know, they'll get they'll get him on five live four times a year on results no. or, or anything like that, that kind of day. And it wasn't it, it ignored the opportunity, as far as I'm concerned, that a lot of these CEOs have got to be in their bonnet about something, mm -hmm. you know, an opportunity in their industry 
industry that everyone's ignoring, not just them, or, or a challenge, or they want to talk about how they built their business, or they're looking at legacy, or they're looking at, you know, they might have handed over the, the reins of their business to their their protégé, to, it might be their son or daughter or someone who they've been nurturing for a while, and then suddenly they're chairman of the business, and they've, they've not got much to do, but they've got to be in their bonnet, and they want attention. And I thought, I actually just purely want to focus with that person and uh, and that's what we did so the word conciliera kind of emerged because the first version of the website i did when i decided to do this was kind of me guessing at what i thought ceos would want because mm-hmm. I, this was kind of quite new and the version that we have now and the reason why i call myself a conciliere is because i now know what they actually want rather than what i perceive and it is very much about standing beside them mm. giving them genuinely strategic you know advice about you know do i fall out with this person do i do this do i do that and um a lot of it is about being a conciliere a confessor a fixer a friend you know, and, and I do challenge clients. So I don't say, you know, I, I like to joke with my clients. I'll say, look, if you don't want to be on the front page of tomorrow's newspapers for clubbing baby seals to death, <laughs> then you don't club them to death today. And then they get someone like me to write a flowery press release saying our company's committed to reducing the number of seal deaths. <laughs> and we want to play our part in, uh, you know, next year of a 20 percent reduction in overall seal death numbers and all this kind of stuff. What I say to them is ring the crew now that are on their way with their clubs over their, you know, over their heads waiting to club these seals to death and call them off. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> and that's the bit that's a challenge for a lot of our clients is they often they often think that I can sort of issue a press release that's kind of be flowery. And they also misunderstand even at that significant level if they've got inbound press interest in something that they're mildly or even severely embarrassed about they run away they think that if they just don't return the journalist calls mm. that um that you know you'll think oh well he's not returned our calls so we won't splash on the fact that that company's killed that kid do you know what i mean mm. uh, so you know and i'll say look we can w- the, the journalist is going to write a page on you tomorrow come what may mm. it's either going to be filled with speculation about what your options are and why you're refusing to cooperate or it's going to be filled with some of your quotes and how desperately you are sorry you are about how this happened you yeah. know and this is what you're going to do and because I, I, that's but, always the case isn't it There's, uh, events create a news vacuum which has to be filled by something so your message to these guys these men and women is get your message into this into this vacuum rather than someone else's i tell my clients they're adrift on the sea of news you know you can have the most amazing idea um whatsoever and if you know someone famous dies that day you've no chance mate and we can put a lot of effort into something that just gets completely abandoned and Mm. it's also it's also works the other way that we can have a really weak story that's utterly undeserving of a page lead or anything more than a two minute aside on you know wake up to money Mm. and then and then suddenly it's all you've got and you you have to splash on it it's the lead (laughs) story and my ceo's talking on it for seven or eight minutes and that's because nothing's happened or something that was going to happen then didn't um so it is it is a bit utterly random really the news Um, beast works in mysterious ways oh it's hellish it's absolutely (laughs) hellish and it's you know without without sounding overly dramatic it's pr can be quite stressful really because you're you're triangulating three relationships really us the media you know the journalist who is under no obligation to um to repeat their kind of pr buzzwords or even obligation to cover anything and then the client because you know 
I, I might have a client who manufactures spoons, for example. They might have, I don't, but let's say they were a cutlery manufacturer mm. and they bring out a new range of spoons. They might. This is the problem. They genuinely believe that that spoon is the best spoon in the market. It's <laughs> not that they're pretending. They they they're proud of it. They've taken a year to develop that spoon, um, you know. And then they think, oh wow, this is going to change everything. And then what we do is we speak to what cutlery magazine and we speak to some journalist who's going to do a comparative review of spoons. <laughs> and he looks at it and goes, mm, yes, all right, that's probably about the third or fourth best spoon uh, in the marketplace. And he, he you know, do he or she'll do an article on that. Mm. saying that this spoon's come forth in the comparative review. Our client is then utterly heartbroken and <laughs> is blaming us. So you've got to try and you've got to try and keep the client's spirits up mm. without getting into misleading them because you also have to that journalist is a genuine arbiter as to whether something is interesting or is that whether it will be believed. And uh, yeah, it's a nightmare. Mm. You mentioned you've been in PR for 20 years but you didn't start out in PR did you you you, um, you had a different career beforehand just and just tell us a bit about that about you started your own company didn't you pretty young yeah, I started a little computer business in York, where I'm from, and uh, I, it was mainly a holiday job at the uh, at first. I was just kind of off. I put a little advert in the local paper and just offered to fix people's computers. And I used to cycle to people's largely houses with a kind of Tesco carrier bag full of antivirus discs, and usually was doing sort of. Re removal of antivirus and I built that up more by accident more than design really but I built that up to about 20 odd people and sold it in my uh, my mid-20s and um, it's um, I, I couldn't afford to advertise at first and that's how I built my business was just by doing things in the local media how old were um, you when you started the business oh about 18 something like that um, so I'll do things in the local media and I, I can't this is how I, I really start, started a love of the media I I got to know the editor of the Yorkshire Evening Press, uh, the deputy editor and the head of news. So, and I don't know why, I don't know whether it's because we clicked, but they, they used to nip to the pub next door for sort <laughs> of three or four lunchtime pints most days, because this is old school. Uh, and I, for some reason, I got invited once and the edit, I made the editor laugh. So I was kind of a regular hanger on to the, the senior editorial team of the Yorkshire Evening Press. And what, what helped there is I, I do a press release saying, my, you know, we're, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, you know, in York today. And because they get hundreds of press releases inbound, they would just ignore all of them. But because I was a friend of theirs, they would then tell me over these lunchtime pints. Um, well, of course, we wouldn't tell anyone else. But, you know, since you're here, mm. your press release was terrible because, you know, the actual only interesting bit was buried in paragraph four and blah, blah, blah. And I'd actually get practical advice. Um, and, and I kind of use that advice to get to make, make myself more noteworthy that built the business up and then mm. when i sold it i thought yeah i quite like the media i'm fascinated by it i wonder if there's a way that i can make a living from it and what were you like at school and were you was it really about computing when you were at school or, or were you interested in sort of media type stuff as well no i wasn't i, I was more interested in computers really uh, than anything else i originally wanted to be a lawyer that was that was my degree mm. um but I, I failed spectacularly at that, that and, and frankly, I'm so glad I did. You know, you look back in your life at the, the monumental failures that you think are a disaster, and then you look back and you think, wow, I dodged a bullet there. Mm. I might have ended up a lawyer. Um, you know, no disrespect to them, but that's not for me. What was it um, about being a lawyer that made you want to be that when you were younger? Um, that's an interesting question. I actually don't know the answer to that, really. Um, I, you know, yeah, I used to watch a lot of legal dramas on telly and things like that. Mm. And uh, I don't know, I just found, found the law quite fascinating. I still do. I still read the legal pages of the Times and things like that. And between me and you, 
he said on on air on a podcast <laughs> um yeah on the record um we have we have a lot of clients that are in a lot of disputes and we we're, we have to attend a lot of court hearings and barristers briefings and all of this kind of thing because a, a lot of com- companies are just as mindful of the reputational impact as of the legal disputes now as as the legal you know the actual legal case itself mm. so you i kind of still have my fill of all of that um but uh, yeah so i thought i'd uh, i thought i'd try my hand at pr and i've i've not been so bad at it i think for me the key uh, is i know this sounds brutally commercial in a sense and very money oriented but actually there's so many hundreds of pr companies out there that what I think where we've done reasonably well is is we've carved this niche because if we just did corporate PR or consumer PR, if I was going to do the, the spoon, for example, if there'll there'll be eight companies in London that specialise in cutlery mm. and kitchen product PR, mm. and all of them could do that spoon company's PR, but ultimately they'll shortlist three and then they'll pick the cheapest or they'll pick the one who's going to do them a favour behind the scenes. It's it's a race to the bottom in, in terms of fees, and I think the more you can differentiate yourself in Carbonage, the, the better. So, yeah, I mean, it works really well. I think mm. the most exciting thing about what we do is just the sheer amount of nonsense and intrigue we get involved in behind the scenes. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe some of the some of the nonsense that we've we've been asked to advise on. Um, and I'd love to write a memoir about it some one day, but one I, day I, you'll I, be I able to. Find, <laughs> well, I can't find a way to anonymize it because <laughs> you know I can't. I don't know how I can describe the nuances of a situation without revealing the industry or whatever. But I'll try and find a way one day. So were you running the the IT the computing business at the same time as you were doing the law degree, or was that were they separate? Yeah, I um, well, I, I kind of uh, I think uh, well, I when, once I'd moved on from my law um, from the computer business, I kind of thought I'm going to do three things. I'm going to try and earn money at PR. I'm going to study the law. So I did the law for about six years part time at Leeds what was then Leeds Met University. Mm. And then I thought I'll also try my hand at politics. Uh, I'd always wanted to get involved in politics. And I thought they kind of fed each other, really. And my plan was, um, wh- whichever two fail first, uh, <laughs> I'll then stick with the third one. So I did my law studies. I couldn't get what's called pupillage, which is a, a thing that you, there's, there's, there's so few of them. And I'm glad I didn't now in hindsight, but, um, you know, I did six years of law study and then it didn't get anywhere. I mean, I'm still glad I did it. I learned a lot. But so that was the first to go. Mm. I did politics for sort of 10, 12 years. I was stood for parliament. I was, I worked for two ministers. I was uh, an elected councillor in my own town of York. I, I would literally, my poor wife and I, you know, I, well, poor wife, I wasn't. I, I would turn up to loads of Labour Party meetings in constituencies like Bladen, where I think either the MP had announced he was going to stand down or we thought he might die soon. I know that sounds awful, but, you know, I was the classic, pathetic, wannabe, aspiring MP that would turn up to the opening of an envelope at Scarborough constituency <laughs> Labour Party if it meant laurie quinn might be might lose the election do you know what i mean so mm. there was me and anyway so i think that was the second thing i was to fail at is um <laughs> you know i'm an uber blairite and still am but mm. when when tony stood down we were all i mean we were not liked as a group of people but they didn't like me in particular so mm. i knew i had no chance so then i was left with the third option which is pr and frankly it's it's the most enjoyable um you know part of what i do really i'd love the privilege of, of getting yeah, and it sounds really kind of almost cynical, but getting access to the very, you know, top people. We we work with uh, the CEO of a um, prominent uh, record label, 
And, uh, you know, when I'm in his office in Manhattan, you know, it's a 27-story building. And <laughs> there are people who have spent 20 years working their way up to the top floor. And I get in the lift at reception, go all the way up to the top, and start talking to the CEO about what he should and shouldn't do. And mm. that's it. I mean, it's an incredible privilege, really. <laughs> and uh, you, you always get to see pay behind the curtain when you deal directly with the CEO and they take you into the confidence. And it yeah. often is a bit like the Wizard of Oz. Mm. You mentioned your political career there. I'd like to ask you about that in a minute. But also, I'm really interested about why did you decide to sell the company? Because on the face of it, you know, you, you were employing 20 people. It was doing well. And, you know, you're early 20s at that point, I'm guessing. You know, why, why did you decide to sell it at that point? My heart had gone out of it, if I'm honest. I'd, I'd started on this little kind of, you know, antivirus crusade and helping out local things and built it up. But I'd never actually set out to run a local computer business. I'd kind of once I'd got into it and was growing it and then I had seven staff and then I thought, well, I'll best pull my finger out and do some PR and marketing so I've got mouths to feed. You then do a bit more marketing and you win five or six more big contracts, albeit locally. Mm. And then you kind of think, oh, I'm going to have to have another member of staff. So I kind of, I never chose to do it, if that sounds a strange thing to say. It kind of crept up on me. And I I think people now call it a quarter-life crisis. Well, <laughs> I had a cheerful version of that mm. where I thought, you know, I wasn't miserable, but I, I also became acutely aware that this wasn't, I didn't want to be a, a local businessman running a computer business and that's no disrespect i don't mean to demean you know anyone who does do that but i, I just i just felt that i you know i've lived in york all my life um politics was starting to take off and i thought i might um i might pursue something there and it just felt the right moment really for me to to do something next that i was actually going to consciously choose to start something mm -hmm. rather than just carry on. I, I have a lot of friends. You know, I'm 43. I, even though I don't believe it, when I look in the mirror, I, I feel a lot older and I can't believe I've somehow blinked and I'm now 43 mm. and it's come at me from nowhere. But I have, a, I have quite a few friends that are in what I call golden handcuff situations where, you know, they're, they're in a job that they're good at. They're very, very well paid at. Uh, they've got a lot of outgoings and family things to pay for, but they're not fulfilled anymore. And But they, if they tried something else, they'd either have to risk all their savings and risk their livelihood. And um, I always say that they're unhappy in their job, but they're not sufficiently unhappy to do something about it. Mm. And to me, I was in that kind of meh type, you know, I wasn't unhappy, but I wasn't, I wasn't being fulfilled and I wasn't enjoying it. So mm. I just thought, I cannot. I won't forgive myself if I don't do something about this. Mm. What was it that drove you to set up the business in the first place? Was it encouragement from your parents or were you always showing a sort of entrepreneurial streak? What what made you start it in the, in the first place? My dad's always run a business. I think I've always, um, I've always felt quite entrepreneurial, really. Um, I've always felt a bit put off, actually, and a lot of people I've spoken to do by these what I would call superhero entrepreneurs like Richard Branson and Elon Musk and people like that. I've been very involved in young enterprise for, for sort of 12, 13 years now. Mm. And I think whilst it's great in one sense that you, you know, that Richard Branson's earned those billions and isn't it great to be an entrepreneur, but I think he also, not that he does this deliberately, but because he appears to be like this superhero entrepreneur, it feels like it's, most people feel it's unattainable. And like, because I'll never be as rich as Elon Musk, I don't have his insight. You almost then don't even start like a little business mm. so I, I was very lucky to be uh, exposed you know at an early age to to you know my dad running his business because then i didn't think it was just that running a business was something that these superhero guys do mm. there was also a lot of people running uh, and I, I remember he, he, t he taught me a lot of 
you know, really useful lessons that I still still learn now. I mean, I remember um, he often used to, it was a, a home furnishing business in York. Mm. And uh, he used to drive to people's houses on in an evening and measure their like their houses up so so he could give them a quote for carpets and curtains, which is what he supplied. And uh, sometimes I used to be as a seven and eight year old kid, I would go with him, and it was dressed up as an adventure and you know, as a treat. <laughs> but the reality is, probably my mum was doing something else, and <laughs> I just had to go along with my dad. But I believed the deception at the time <laughs> that this was something that was a it was a treat. And it was and exciting at the, the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I would come into the houses. And my dad would charm them and they'd get on and there'd be cups of tea and then he'd write them a kind of um, a proposal there and then by hand about this is what your curtains will be and so on. And I remember there was one thing where I drove away and with my dad and he said, yeah, I think we've got them as a customer. They really like me and blah, blah, blah. And then I remember saying, but dad, they could, in theory, they could measure the, their, their windows and their floor space up themselves. <laughs> Why don't you just have a price list that says, you know, your five carpets are this and your, your curtains are this price. And then they could you, they could work that out themselves. And then, you know, you could then charge them. And, he, and I'll never forget this. He said, but son, he said, if I do that and they come up with sort of two grand, he said, if I'm bound by a price list, he said, I can go in there and charm them. They like me and say, that'll be four and a half grand. And because they like me and they they say, yes, no problem. And I'll actually lose money if I do that mm -hmm. because they, they can get other quotes. That's up to them. But if I say to them, I'm going to furnish your lounge for four and a half grand and they want to pay it, then that's the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember kind of key insights along the way about things like that. I mean, we do it as well. We do it with clients where we come in and any kind of PR guy that tells you how they can work out a monthly fee it is actually fibbing. The reality is, is that you take an assessment of, you know, what do they want to pay? And then you you match what you can do for that. Not in a way mm. that's ripping them off, but quite the opposite. If you if you say, Paul, can you do my PR for five grand? I already know that, that you'll get more junior staff, that you might get a podcast every three months and maybe one website kind of thing. Whereas if I know that you're going to be paying sort of 25, 30, I can suggest more ideas into the strategy because there's more resources available. So knowing your budget, knowing your client's budget is key. It is, but the problem is because what we do is quite new and what we do builds on and runs alongside traditional PR, they often don't have a budget insofar as literally their PR budget is going to pay their current PR company, of which we're not going to hmm. replace. So we have to kind of roughly think, you know, what will this guy pay? And then you know, what can we do for that? So you do have to, you, there is an element of commerciality in the creativity because there's no point me going to a client and all guns blazing saying, give us 30 grand a month and we'll do everything for you for them to say, are you having a laugh? Mm. You know, um, because th then if they come back and say, well, we only want to pay 10, you know, you're getting into a kind of, well, okay, which ingredients are we going to take out and all of this mm. kind of thing. It's just, so you've got to try and get it right first time really, which is just agony. But do you think you're still, you're, as you say, you're applying the same principles that you saw your dad applying all those years ago? Yeah, I do. I, I hope none of my clients listen to this because <laughs> the reality is, is that whichever, and I, I know all PR companies are largely do this, is whatever they pay, they end up getting the same service anyway because no one wants to lose clients. So all PR agencies always have this problem where they over service. So they end up losing money because they commit so much resources because they don't want to be fired mm. that they end up, the client gets used to a kind of 10 grand a month level of service but at five and it also makes it even harder to raise the price later to kind of bring some commerciality to it um so yeah I th and that's why i think having fewer direct competitors is actually a good thing because it means that we can be creative 
you know, and good people are expensive. That's mm. another thing people don't realise. You know, mm. I, I could have 20 people in my office on minimum wage if I wanted, but we'd soon get fired. So, yeah, just the whole thing is a litany of miserable agony. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, it's okay. <laughs> and so then, yeah, so you sold the business because your heart, you so your heart wasn't really in it. But then, yeah, so then you looked at these three options, um, the law, PR and politics. So, yeah, just tell me more about the, the politics side because you were doing it for a good 10 years, as you said, didn't you? So what drove you oh, to, yeah, to try and to, because you, you were a councillor, you stood for parliament. What drove you to, to do that? What drove me, and this sounds a cliche and trite, I know already, I think if, some, if I heard someone else say this, I think, oh, God, pass me the sick bucket. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to make a difference. I actually was at a conference um, years before I embarked on politics, and I was walking across Westminster Bridge, and I just looked up at Big Ben, and I just felt that I wanted to be there, if I'm honest. Mm. It wasn't even necessarily as an MP. It was more, I just felt that that was where decisions were being made that could affect people's lives and it seemed to me exciting and vibrant and you know and all of that and I thought well, yeah I want to be there so I kind of I joined the Labour Party and then literally just walked in off the street uh, to the uh, to York Labour Party's office and just said right I'm now a member I joined what can I do mm. and uh, I'll never forget what they said they said oh, well we're not sure what you can do but uh, we'll get back to you mm. uh, because back then this was mass membership they had hundreds of members in York I mean now you'd be lucky to get well, I mean, now because of Corbyn, of course, they're back to having hundreds of members. But there was a big middle bit, a malaise, where York, you know, York Labour Party would have had like 200 members. But when mm. I joined it, I'd like 2,000. Mm. So the, after about three or four weeks, I, you know, I've been there full of enthusiasm, thinking, yeah, I'm a young person, I'm passionate, I'm really involved, want to get involved. Um, they, I then got this letter back from the city of York Labour Party saying, we've had a think about what you can do. And uh, the answer is not much. Uh, we, we don't want to, there's nothing really you can do, but thanks for your help. Mm. So I was like, what? This is the weirdest thing ever. And then by, I actually knew one of my clients, the secretary, the receptionist, was a counsellor uh, for the Labour Party. And I just happened to mention this to her. And she actually took me under her wing and introduced me to a few people and said, you should stand for election and you should do this and you should do that. And then she kind of got me, got me in it. And it always proves it's who you know. Mm. It's never what you know. Um, so yeah, I got involved in politics, ended up on the council, got involved in loads of adventures i uh i tried to ban foie gras that was the biggest campaign i think i did in the yeah tell me more UK. about that i read a bit about that but tell me more about that what was that all about well i mean to be honest i've never even heard of foie gras i didn't even know how to pronounce it i thought it was like foist grass um <laughs> and uh actually to be honest I, I remember the first time i ever went on sky news it was jeremy thompson live at five and it, he was like in his amazing booming Anchorman voice was like, a councillor in York is trying to ban the sale of the French delicacy foie gras. Well, but you know, is, you, are, you, are you mad, Paul? And I was in the Scandinavian studio shaking with nerves, thinking, literally looking at him thinking, you're Jeremy Thompson. I watch you off the TV. And I was really nervous. But I, I, I managed to get in the website, banfoiegras.org.uk. Uh, uh, and I thought, I've just been on Sky. Um, you know, I'm going to look at the metrics of the website now and the stats because loads of people will have gone to it and it was barely none. And then I actually realised my dad had tried to get on it and I'd looked at his URL and the reason why no one had gone on the website is because no one can spell foie gras. <laughs> and I learned, a, I learned a really simple, keep it simple, stupid, you know, the old analogy. Mm, yeah. So when I, I went on Channel 4 News three or four days later, and I'm there with Krishnan, and I said, yeah, can you need to go to the website, stopbirdtorture.com. <laughs> you know, I've even dumbed it down. So, and then I got a big spike. So I kind of learned a lot about that. That's a very um, valuable PR yeah, lesson, though, isn't it? 
I, in my book, honestly, everything I've ever learned is by absolutely royally screwing it up and <laughs> realizing you. These some of these clever strategy people can disappear up their own backside writing twenty nine page strategy documents, and sometimes they can all go wrong because mm. they've over, everyone's overlooked a key thing, or everyone thought someone else was doing it. Anyway, so I, try, I tried to ban foie gras, and that got me. You know, I kind of developed a taste for campaigning and mm. getting in the media and all this kind of thing. And I kind of what like that I built up a lot of my contacts. Uh, like I met Krishna Guru Murthy sort of 12 years ago when I first did that campaign. I kept in touch with him. Mm. We played stuff on Channel 4 News. He came on the podcast, you know, that yeah. kind of thing, really. Um, so that was good. And then I think I um, another one I did is the there's York Race Course. And um, um, the York Race Course owns everything on it including the land but the council on the lease there's like the and we charge a peppercorn rent every hundred years or something and i happen to be on the planning committee for york council when this 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 kind of i think it's every 10 years maybe where they and they have to literally pay a peppercorn mm. and there's like a notional thing where they um you know, it's it's just nodded through on a committee every 10 years. You know, item agenda number 72, re agree to carry on the peppercorn rent for York race course. And I, I jumped on this and said, this might be an opportunity for us to ban the use of the whip in horse racing, mm. that we can make it a precondition of renewing their lease uh, um, that if unless they ban the use of uh, ban the whip on horses, then uh, we won't do it. And of course, that created a huge furore, as you can imagine. I got mm. this is, social media starting to take off. Then again, more media and hundreds of people emailing me saying I was a horrible man and a dick and blah blah blah. <laughs> um, and in the end, in fact, I mean, because of course I was uh, on the council, they had to at least consider it. But the yacht. Yacht race course went to the jockey club or the British Horse Racing Authority. Whoever it was was like the the main thing, and they wrote this letter to the chief executive of the council, and they said, "Every either the the whip is going to be used in every race course in the UK, or but you can't have one opting out. So if you if you do pass this, we will immediately have to fire the three hundred people that work at the race course and close the business down." Mm. And that was literally the letter that the planning committee got. So. You know, as it was debated, it was kind of became a no-brainer at that point. The rest of the committee looked to me and went, uh, <laughs> should we just nod this through? Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> but by then, <laughs> but Reality by then kind of, <laughs> yeah. But by then I've kind of built up a bit of a furore and all of that. Mm. Having said that, you know, I've been involved in all of these animal welfare campaigns. They've all failed. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I can say, oh, yeah, they raised awareness. Well, so what? I'd rather, I'd rather they... I'd rather have banned the things I set out to ban. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's the whole problem with this kind of thing. Mm. Now, you actually you stood for Parliament as well, didn't you? I mean, what was that experience like? You didn't win the seat, as I'm sure we could guess, but <laughs> from your career. No. But the no. um, what, what was that experience like? Was it a marginal seat or was it, was it always going to be uh, you were going to lose that seat? I loved that. I stood for it. I was the candidate for the, a year in Rydale, which is a North Yorkshire seat. It was directly underneath William Hague's old seat, just north right. of York. And uh, it's, a tr it's, a str it's a kind of r rural, leafy, um, kind of very strongly conservative seat. Mm. Uh, and I, um, well, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of his name now, forgive me. Um, it'll come back to, oh, that's terrible that I can't remember his name. But the <laughs> chap who stood before me mm. uh, went on to get a strong seat and... Um, you know, I thought this could be my chance to, to, to train and learn and so on and so forth. So mm. I did, but I actually, even though I kind of did it slightly cynically in terms of the choice to do it, I then really enjoyed it because you honestly get to meet, um, it's probably one of the best years I ever had, actually. You get to meet everyone 
in, in, in from all sections of society when you're the political candidate because everyone does i think i realize that everyone does this it's to the extent that you end up just associating in your own certain circles of your own industry and your own street and local community and so on but you don't meet everyone at every level you know i met firemen and policemen and people who are doing all kinds of different jobs i really really enjoyed it and uh, again animal welfare figured quite figured quite strongly in my campaign all of the other candidates on the ballot paper were um, uh, in favor of fox hunting and i'm against it mm. and um the labor party just said well as long as you don't cause any trouble you can you can basically have whatever views you want and i thought it was important that someone opposed fox hunting be on the ballot paper. And I also mm. thought it deeply patronising that you assume that just because people live in the countryside that they're all in favour of fox hunting. You know, one thing I learned when I stood for Parliament is that people who live in the countryside uh, don't care about rural issues. That's like the fourth or fifth on their list. They care about the same things that people who live in towns and cities do, mm. their education, the, the police, you know, that kind of thing, um, you know, whether they've got a job. And a lot of it is... Um, townies kind of patronizing rural people so anyway so i did that and i kind of worked it um as best i could uh and i got i think i was the party's best performing candidate in the whole election in terms of increased vote mm. uh, obviously i'm not best performing if you define it in terms of did you actually win and get into <laughs> parliament lo and behold no it seems to be a theme emerging here but um uh, um, but that was gratifying because i thought inevitably that um that that would mean that i'll be guaranteed a safe seat five years later mm. of course gordon took over then and the business took off and various things and i just realized i had no chance so mm. there you go move to london seek fame and fortune yeah so uh, just back up slightly you did mention that the you've mentioned a few couple of times the animal welfare causes where does the desire to to get behind those causes come from i um was i was a meat eater till i was about uh, 25 um, I gave no thought to animal welfare whatsoever. Um, I took my mum to Nice for like a weekend away um, and we, we got a, like a nice hotel and I thought we'll have some nice meals and so on. It was, I think it was a birthday or something. And we were in a restaurant and there was the waiter came up and he had a, a tray full of ice on it and there was three lobsters uh, on it. And I was just, I don't know why I was so naive because I'd seen lobsters before, but they had the, the first thing I noticed about them is they had, uh, rubber bands around their pincers mm. and I, I thought why is that and then I realized that they were alive um, and they were moving and the the waiter was like oh eat, you know do you want one of these they're ju juicy and they're really flavorful and so on and uh, oh, my mum said uh, oh yeah I'll have that one and mm. so on and I was just profoundly struck in that moment of the sheer injustice of that that lobster mm. um, it, I, I'll never get over it I I just knew then for me that eating meat was wrong uh, or eating anything that, you know, was alive. And I said to my mum, I said, mum, I've, I've just turned vegetarian. <laughs> and she laughed it off, you know, because it was just, it was so random and mm -hmm. out of the blue. Um, she said, oh, don't be silly. <laughs> and I said, no, I have mum. Anyway, so I was, she thought I was going to be vegetarian for a few days. And then, you know, that was it. But I, I have not eaten meat in you know, 20 odd years mm. since then. I haven't. I, well, I've eaten meat accidentally, of course, because mm. some of this fake meat is so real that when you accidentally serve, re it tastes, looks and tastes so real mm. that when you are sometimes accidentally served real meat, you actually think it is corn. Um, <laughs> and it actually turns out that it was beef, but I've mm. never knowingly done that. Uh, yeah. And then about five or six years later, I went vegan mm. um, because my first ever chief executive client was um, 
um, a, a CEO of an animal welfare charity uh, called Philip Limbury's, mm. a very good friend of mine still, and he runs Compassion in World Farming. And um, they campaign against factory farming and things like that. And, you know, when you've seen so many of these kind of animal welfare videos, you, en- you end up, the, you know, you can't, you can't unsee them really. So for me, it just became, it just became obvious. So I think, I, I think my mum's glad now because she considers sort of veganism a kind of extreme diet and mm. there isn't, there isn't anything more extreme than that. I mean, actually, I haven't said that. She read an article in the Daily Mail the other day about fruitarians and <laughs> she thinks that I'm going to, and then there's that one, isn't it, where they nick the food from the back of the bins around Marks and Spencer's because they don't want to contribute to, <laughs> Well, they're called freegans, aren't they? That's, That's right. right. Yeah, like, are you, you going to go freegan next, son? <laughs> no, I'm not. Is that her greatest fear? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Look, my office is in Soho. There's about <laughs> 10 vegetarian restaurants within 60 seconds walking distance here. I'm in the right place. Yeah, so you're but, all right. Uh, so but then, yeah, so I mean... Sorry, Karen, Go on, please. go on. I was going to say, yeah, so it's fascinating to kind of talk about this kind of thing. But ultimately, I think all... It's all led to where I am now, really, which is, uh, you know, I I enjoy the mix of being my own boss. I like the intrigue and the privilege of working with like chief executives. I am fascinated by the media um, and it kind of all different aspects of my life feed into each other, really. I mm. mean, you know, I, I love my podcast, but it although it, it costs me money, it actually really helps my business because it builds my network and you know, the Americans love it, that it's kind of evidence. You know, they, they often say, well, who do you know? You know, who, mm. you know, do you, do you know the editor of Harvard Business Review? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, she is on the podcast. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it does build the network. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, working in the media and being a consumer of the media, I enjoy the kind of um, working to place people. I, I mean, as, as, as we said before, this <laughs> started, I actually got someone on Wake Up to Money uh, <laughs> earlier. <laughs> and and that's that's good. I like doing that because I, I feel, you know, that's your your big guy as the journalist mm. is the ultimate arbiter. I, I think the reality, that the relationship between a PR person and the journalist is actually the most truthful because if you say you'll have someone on Wake Up to Money, you're not going to ruin your reputation or do a disservice to your listeners mm. if you if by having someone who's not going to be a good guest so ultimately the binary decision is is do you want that person on your show or not and to me it, it boils down to that truthful relationship that you don't you don't have to kind of you know bullshit me mm. and say oh he is a great guy because ultimately you're either going to have him on or you're not and you're only going to have him on if it's going to drive value for your listeners mm. uh, so i quite like that because when you when you get you know when you get a client who's happy and you get the journalist or the producer that's happy mm. i think that's great there's no better feeling than it mm. and just back to the the politics for a second then what was it then you you know you had the general election then you said gordon brown came in and it seemed obvious that you you thought you weren't going to get it wasn't going to happen and other things were happening but what was what was the reason why you gave up on that? Because obviously you'd invested a lot of time into the politics. What was it that made you think, okay, I'm going to leave that behind now? I I saw how a lot of MPs were miserable hmm. in their life. I mean, it's a lot of, and I know a lot of really good, I mean, if you actually look at the toxic atmosphere now on Twitter and social media, even back then, I, the, 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 I worked for George Fowkes, uh, and I worked for uh, a very good friend of mine, Nigel Griffiths, who was the MP for Edinburgh South. Uh, I was part of his team. Um, and he, you know, they did great work, but the, the, a lot of it was thankless. I, I just thought it wasn't. And, you know, you only get some 
some influence. I thought it just it just wasn't worth it. It just seemed to be a big grind. Yeah. And do you know what? I don't drink alcohol now, but a big part of why I gave up is that I don't think people realise just how um, the, the culture, the toxic culture at Westminster, how it drives mental ill health, is, is oriented around alcohol because we, there is nothing to do if you're a member of parliament on a night other than to wait to be called to go through the lobby. And yet there's like eight bars and it's like 60p a pint. Mm. Uh, so, so like the only thing you've got to do is wait five hours in a bar with with cheap booze what are you going to do you're going to end up getting drunk every night and mm. that is basically what we did i mean i did everything an alcoholic did without the alcoholism do you know what i mean i didn't have a, i didn't i didn't have all the the upset and everything that drove me to alcoholism but i was mm. kind of drinking seven or eight pints every night even on a weeknight because that was the job it, it wasn't very um wasn't very good. I'll give you another example as well about mm. how you, you perceive it's about doing good. George Fawkes used to be Minister of State at Diffid, and uh, he was Claire Short's number two. And mm. I said to him, wow, what an incredible privilege that you've got, say, two billion quid to give away to good causes. You know what? And, you know, you can help choose which worthy causes get these um, get these incredible investments and this money. That must be an incredible feeling. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Paul, it's the worst job in the world. And he really meant it. And I said, what, what do you mean, George? He said, well, let's say I've got two billion to give away. If you total up all of the applications from all the worthy people, that adds up to 73 billion. Mm. So I'm not actually giving away two billion. I'm turning down 71 billion mm. pounds worth of very worthy applications from people who believe themselves rightly to, to want that. And not only am I turning them down when I actually want them to succeed and haven't got any money, yeah. but also they're now motivated they're against me because they think I've been ungrateful or that I've disrespected them or that I've just not been sufficiently caring. And also what happens when I've spent $1.9 billion of my money and I've got a hundred you know a million left or whatever and i've got two million quids worth of inbound stuff that's just on the cusp which one do i turn down mm. and that was another reason why i thought wow this is you're actually in any you know the old adage is to govern is to choose but you know it is true you end up making lots of really quite bad decisions so it's, there's no joy in it if i'm mm. honest you can see why Theresa may looks so miserable <laughs> i mean because any anything she does 70% of the audience are going to start calling her names and saying she's an idiot. Mm. <laughs> so there were plenty of reasons for you as to why you didn't want to be to go on to be an MP. Is it right as well that around that time when you made this decision that you declared bankruptcy and and if so how I did indeed. Yeah, what 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 how difficult a decision was that and and how was it coming back from that or you know how did it, how it did that fall? How did that yeah, work out? Yeah, I mean I I always say about my bankruptcy it's something that happened to me. Um, I'm neither proud of it nor am I ashamed of it. It's, mm. I kind of use the kind of parking ticket analogy. Um, yeah, my wife and I bought a property that was off plan and it hadn't been built yet. And um, basically, once the property crash happened and when they eventually the houses were built, it was worth sort of 70 grand less than we contracted to buy it for. And, you know, I just didn't have the money. Mm. Um, and a lot of the other first-time buyers on that estate, they went to their grandparents and their, you know, they raided their savings and they, they managed to make up the difference mm. And because um, the building company wouldn't reduce the cost. And they were moving into houses where they were just starting out and they were already 70 grand in negative equity and and having credit card debt to have financed it mm. and I, we, I just couldn't i couldn't do it so um i got into a long and protracted dispute with the builder and um they they eventually said something like look if you give us um a thousand pound a month for 10 years we'll we'll write this off 
and uh, I remember my dad saying to me at the time, he said, Paul, you could pay this off for seven or eight years in good faith. Mm. But then if you get into difficulty seven years from now, he said, they'll make you bankrupt then. Um, he said, you're better off just to learn to bugger off. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and that all came around the time where I thought, you know, do I want to make a go in London and all this kind of thing? So I thought, right, do the whole Dick Whittington thing, mm. declare bankruptcy. I don't think that was in the Dick Whittington style, was it? But to <laughs> move, move to London and, and seek fame and fortune. So was it a, a difficult thing personally to do or, you know, did it feel, how did it feel to actually do that though? Did it feel like a positive decision at the time? Yes and no. It's weird bankruptcy, really, because it's not like you've been convicted for beating a small child mm. or, or it's like embarrassing in an odd way because you're not a straight. I suppose the embarrassment is, is that it's a kind of very, very public failure, mm. as it were. Like I, I wasn't upset by it, really, but my, you know, my, some of my family were and I felt sorry for them, like I'd let them down. Um, but um, and also. You know, people going bankrupt is not news at all. Mm. No one cares whether I went bankrupt. Unfortunately, because I was a councillor, it then made the front page. Mm. Um, because, you know, if I'd not been in politics, it wouldn't have even mattered. But it also, as I say, it kind of helped me draw a line under politics and all of that kind of thing and kind of move to London and then make a go of what I was going to do here. But mm. it was it was interesting because... You know, I think the most creative thing I've done is pull all of this out of thin air in London mm. with no money and no borrowing or anything. I mean, I did genuinely move to London with nothing. And, you know, it's taken me 11, 12 years to build this up and it's been hard. Mm. But, you know, it can, it can be done. So tell me about that decision to move to London then. What was the reasoning behind saying, OK, right, I'm going to London? I was commute, I was backwards and forwards to London two or three days uh, a week anyway, because I was working with George and Nigel and in politics and so on, and I'd got a couple of clients down here, mm. and there was a, there was a quite a lot of resentment building up to me uh, in York Labour Party because they were some of it was personal and some of it was they were right. You know, it was like Paul, you can't be a councillor and serve your elected representatives if you're constantly missing meetings. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I wasn't constantly missing them, but I, at one point the local paper did do a story on me saying. You know, I was the least attending member, but I, I was something like, I was still doing like 70% of meetings. Hmm. Um, you know, there's some people that get turned over here by the London media and they're like least performing, least attending. And their, their attendance rate is like zero. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, but hmm. and it, what, I was trying to, trying to do both really. I was on that East Coast main line up and down all the time. And I thought, you know, I need to, I'd kind of let the decision drift really. And that's what my bankruptcy actually made me do it made me kind of force myself to make a decision really and i'm mm. i'm glad i did i have a russian oligarch client egon he's a great guy and mm. he's got a really good turn of phrase he has a really good kind of turn in pithy russian aphorisms <laughs> and i was chatting to him when i got to know him and he says these really kind of quite profound things that sound a bit silly at first and i remember i was telling him this and he said oh yes we have a phrase in russia an old phrase that if you try to catch two rabbits at the same time you won't catch either. <laughs> and I'll never forget that, right? <laughs> it's like the most profound thing I've ever heard because it's actually summed up what I was trying to do. And uh, I thought, right, I'll choose this and, uh, you know, power of focus and all that. Yeah. And then I've never looked back. So is that very much what happened then when you went to London? You folk zoomed in on the one thing. And, and was it the uh, PR to the CEOs at that point or was that still just an idea at that point? I can't, it was. But I, I, want, I ended up taking anything and everything mm. um, because you, you do that when you need the money. Mm. Uh, you know, I was, 
I was I was skint and I was I was bankrupt, you know. So I'd moved down. I think I'd just got my discharge. But uh, I mean, we we have a lot of clients in America, and they they have a different attitude to bankruptcy. And some of mm. our even rich clients, so they'll put one of their 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 companies, subsidiary companies, strategically through Chapter Eleven as a restructuring thing, and no one bats an eyelid. Yeah. And I joke with some of my American clients. I say, you're bankrupt at the moment, sat driving a Ferrari. I had the old-fashioned form of bankruptcy where you've got nothing and you can't afford to buy a tin of beans. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. And they're like, they use it as a restructuring implement now, which is, uh, it was funny. But um, but yeah, as I say, I kind of uh, moved down to London and uh, thought I'd see where it goes. I think, to state the obvious, it's a bigger pond to fish in down mm. here. You know, I, I remember when I was working up north doing bits of PR, you know, I would work for the local hotel and they would give me 500 quid a week and they'd be ringing every day. Mm. And I've always found the less a client pays, the more trouble they are because the more <laughs> it's that, that money matters to them and the more demanding they are. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, here you can charge a lot more. You can charge London rates. Mm. So, so you know, that's what we do. And so were you working for other people then or were you still working, you know, picking up your own clients at that point when you moved to London? I was kind of a freelancer plus others, I suppose you could call it. Right. I did actually have a couple of, I had two or three, um, two or three kind of contracts that were, you could call them quasi-employment because I was retained by them, freelance, but I, I went there like a day and a half a week mm. in their office and was kind of part of their team and stuff. I was, I worked for a couple of years for a company called New Media Maze. Mm. They, um, actually they hired me because of my political connections because they they had no political knowledge whatsoever um n- nothing at all um but randomly they'd won the contract to do 10 downing streets website i'll never forget that and that was one of the reasons why they hired me because they wanted to kind of pr that mm. but actually it's one of the first times i would learned a lot then because my pr backfired for them because because it we generated so much interest in what they'd done. It then meant that people were looking into ha- what they'd done uh, to use as a stick to beat the prime minister with. And mm. I think it was Paul Staines discovered that they'd basically nicked the template for 10 Downing Street's website from a WordPress thing and but literally just, you know, cut and pasted out the, right. the cop- template copyright, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, it was like a free template, yep. but, you know, make sure that the designer's credited and they just literally just took, took that took out. out. And uh, and then so I found out, so that contract soon ended. I think they went bankrupt because of it. Mm. It was awful. But, yeah, I think my PR led to their downfall. <laughs> That's not a very good start, is it? <laughs> no. Was there then a light bulb moment when you sort of came to come to the... Um, you know the the C, working with CEOs. Was there a moment when you, you it became clear to you that that was the niche that you needed to go into? Yeah, I was driving up the M1 at the time. I think I was coming back down the M1. I was coming back from York for something, and I'd, I'd had five or six corporate clients at that point, and we were doing bits for the CR, the CEO, and for some we weren't. And I remember saying to my wife at the time, I, my wife, you know, what isn't involved in PR, I was just saying, I wish there was something called CEO PR mm. that, you know, all we did was the CEO. We didn't have to get bogged down in churning out all these press releases and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then my wife rightly said, she said, well, say there is, create, create it. Mm. That's it. Get on with it. Do it. <laughs> it exists now. And I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, you're right. Why didn't I think of that? So I then created this website called CEO-PR.com. It's still out now. Mm. And it very much was the first the first draft of it was what I thought CEOs would want. It was mm. me guessing. I just imagined they wanted to be popping up on Five Live and LBC and, you know, news channel all the time and mm. all of this and blah, blah, blah. Um, and um, 
I mean, the version now, I mean, I think we're on about the third or fourth incarnation of it now. But now, obviously, I, I, having worked for 40 of the buggers, I now know what they actually want. <laughs> that's what the website says. But um, I went to, we had about five or six clients then, and I said to them, you know, can I charge you the same amount of money and only do 10% of the deliverables now? Because I want to purely focus on CEO PR. Mm. And um, uh, three of them said, sort of, sort of, we wish you well, but uh, mm. that's not for us. Yep. And then uh, a couple of them said, yeah. So we, um, Philip Limbury of Compassionate World Farming, he was my first sort of CEO client. And I work for Philip. I'm still very good friends with him now, but uh, Philip retained us for about five years. Mm. And then one of our other clients, Finker, they're a global microfinance bank. And Rupert Schofield is the global president. They're, they're doing amazing work. They're still a retained client to this day, mm. uh, which I'm very, very proud of. Mm. Um, so I kind of, I, I hope they're not listening to this, but I, I, I need to find a way to block them from getting to know <laughs> that this podcast exists. But um, I kind of learned as I went along, really, whilst charging them. <laughs> I meant well. My heart was in the right place. Um, but it, it, is a, it is a different challenge doing chief executive PR because you've got to, you know, you've got to manage their ego and their vanity mm. as well as stand up to them in their interest. There's a lot of people who have, like, family offices who are very rich, and they usually they'll have one person on staff that does their PR. Mm. But that person is always incredibly miserable and stressed because they've, their mortgage depends on that person and they therefore can't stand up to them and say, you're not going to club those seals to death, Jim. Mm. <laughs> Whereas I, I mean, I, I don't want to get fired by this uh, fictional Jim, mm. but I also, because I, because we've got 30, 41 other Jims, I, I'm not frightened of not paying my mortgage if Jim fires me and therefore I can say, you know, I can say it politely, mm. but I can say it robustly. I'll say, Jim, call these guys off. I'm not going to be able to, to, to magic up this away. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's fascinating. It's, yeah. a, it's a absolutely fascinating going on. It's as with all podcasts, you know, some of the tales I can tell you when the tape stops yeah. is better. It's the same with Media Masters, you know. You get, I get people on and they, you know, they tell you some great stories. And then when it's, you know, oh, Bob, thanks for joining us and the tape stops, yeah. there's then another 10 minutes of, like, absolute amazing stuff that you can't. <laughs> You, you can't do it. I've, honestly, I've had this. I won't name the, uh, this person, but I had a prominent radio broadcaster who, who is partnered with someone else. And I said, oh, how do you get on with this other person? And they were like, oh, yeah, we got on great. And, you know, we often go out for a beer and, you know, our families know each other. And, uh, you know, but, you know, we, we have a great relationship and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so we get to the end of the tape and I turn it off and I said, so, you know, what is your real relationship with this guy? Are you really friends with him? And he went, I can't stand the bastard. <laughs> Often when the tape ends, as you say, that you get the real story, isn't it? But that's very yeah. funny. Um, now, I'd like to ask you uh, three questions that I'm asking everyone, <clears throat> or almost sure. everyone that's doing the, the podcast to finish. So the, the first one is, do you have um, like a, a routine or a set of circumstances that you have to, to go through or to get into to, to do your best work? So, you know, do you have a certain routine in the morning or do you have to work in a specific place how is it that? Where is it that you do your best work, and under what circumstances? I, I I'm in America every other week, um, and every most days I'm going from one crisis to the next. Sometimes it's very rarely it's my own incompetence type crisis, but it's usually either you know a client has got something big that day, or we're reacting to something. So I try and keep my day fairly free. Hmm. So I I often try to get all my admin and my strategic work done first thing in the morning. So I do go to bed early, hmm. but I get up at four o'clock every morning and 
I How um, early do you go I, to bed? About 11 o'clock-ish. That's not uh, that I early. I used to get up at 5 a.m. I used to get up at 5 a.m. And then I told Heather, my wife, at Christmas that I needed an extra hour and I was thinking of getting up at 4 a.m. And she genuinely looked at me without a beat. She said, are you mentally ill? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, no, I'm just <laughs> ambitious. Um, so I get up at 4 and then I... I, I First, I used to just listen to the five. I listened to it up all night. I love Dot and love Rod. Mm. Uh, then it's morning reports, and then unsurprisingly, and that's been for twenty years. Wake up to money. Yes. Uh, and after about a, a month of Heather not sleeping, she was like, "Okay, uh, headphones." So I have some headphones by the bed, and I I, I spend. It's, I call it my hour of power, even though it lasts two hours. Mm. And I I catch up on like admin and plan my day, and then I look at where I'm going for clients and what's coming up because. It's my ch- no one else is awake, and it's mm. like a chance for me to if I if I like need ten minutes of whimsy to just follow a lead or just research something or just think that's interesting. I'll just read that because I'm not under pressure because the phone's ringing. It's quite mm. a it's quite a creative time for me. Mm. Um, but like I also do bits of admin for that. Like like my, one of the first things I do when I get up in the morning. I know this sounds really daft. Is I empty the spam filter mm. because I, I, I although I've got twenty odd people. I can't let my team empty the, the spam filter for our domain because we've signed so many different NDAs that it would actually be a breach of innumerable NDAs if, like, anyone just randomly went in and unblocked you. You wouldn't believe some of the things we've had to sign. Right. So I do that, and that releases a lot of emails. But it also kind of gives me – I do that as I wake up because it's obvious, you know, you, mm. you know what's spam and what's not. Mm. So I'm doing that, and then I plan my day. And then I do a bit of reading. I read The Times – um, yeah, you know, I listen to your dulcet tones, you know, <laughs> Rico, Mickey, yeah. and uh, and is this and is this sitting know, up in bed by the way with the laptop on your knee? Is that where you are at this point? Or I am banned from using a laptop because the screen's so big, it creates like a light pollution in the bedroom. Okay, so it it is literally just my iPhone. Right. I do about half of my work just on my iPhone, so I do I do sit up a bit. Right. I put my headphones in. Okay, um, I've I've learned I can't get out of bed to make a cup of tea because our dogs sleep with us and if i do that they'll then assume it's day and then they we so i have to, I, I have a bottle of water by the bed because i can't physically leave the bedroom because then you know i'm knackered and they'll want out um but yeah i really do enjoy that because that for me is the most creative period it's a chance for me to 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 react to to things but then also start to i've got i've always got the freedom to like you know, if it's a strategy and I'm reviewing it, I've actually got the time. If I think, oh, I can contribute to this, I can, I can just on a whim say, right, I'm going to give me give 20 minutes to this and mm. add, add in a few paragraphs of my ideas, which you you can't do during the day really because stuff happens. The phone's ringing. Mm. I've got 10 emails to react to. I also find it difficult to concentrate on things during the day when you know so much is happening. I, I, you know, I don't know whether it's my problem with a attention deficit disorder but you know if you're dealing with three things and you've dealt with them it's then difficult to kind of calm down and get back to a document that Mm. you're trying to think strategically about so it's the only time that have distraction free really and is that then uh, is that four till six a.m then basically yeah and then i hop in the shower 10 past six i get in my car drive to milton Keynes station i get the half six train into london getting at seven at euston and then i walk to my office which takes about 20 minutes so i'm Usually in the office, and I like, again, I hope none of my team listen to this, but I do like to be in the office earlier than everyone else. Mm. I think there's a psychology to that. Mm. Um, you know, um, I used to work for um, 
couple of clients in York, and you know, I, I used to like the fact the MD. All the, 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 what I respect is the MDs were always in first, mm. and uh, I do like to be in early and ahead of everything. And uh, yeah, then I do. 10 or, 10 or 11 miserable hours of thankless labour and then cry myself to sleep and then we start again. <laughs> when you look back at everything, here's the second question. When you look back at everything, so this can be, you know, the I mean, you've done all sorts of things, haven't you? So there's the PR, there's the... Yeah, I've failed at a lot of things. <laughs> I know that's what you're trying to say. You're right. Don't I know it. There's politics, there's your business, there's, and there's all other things, I'm sure, that we haven't even talked about. But when you... Yeah, there's even more failures. If you want to extend this podcast by another three hours, I can go through the whole lot. Well, this is flipping this around, actually. But when you look at everything over the years, and this can be about anything, I mean, what are you sort of most proud about? The moment that you look back on and you think, yeah, we're really, I did it right there. Uh, that's a great question. And I think... And this doesn't have to be about money or anything like that, by the way. This is more for your sort of personal satisfaction. Well, I mean, several things, really. I, I do think a lot of, like, romantic relationship stuff is down to luck. And I, I know it's a cliche, but I'm very lucky to have met Heather mm. because it is luck. You know, I happened to be a part at that party 15 years ago, but I might not have gone. In fact, I remember on the night thinking, can I be asked to go to this? And then thinking, oh, yeah, well, and, you know, it, if I hadn't met Heather that night, who knows what I've happened? I might be on my third failed marriage by now. I don't <laughs> think anyone's got any answers. There is an element of luck to all of this. Mm. But I, I do, you know, I do, I'm very driven at work, but I, I do want to be a good husband and a good son and a good brother. I think that's very important to me. Mm. You know, I, I'm away a lot. And because of that, I then want to make sure that I'm very present at home, um, you know, when I am at home, if that if that makes sense. Mm. Um so, so yeah, I'm very, very proud of that. I, I do, I, I think because because we're used to kind of looking at a lot of clients. A lot of our clients have, have sold their business or they're moving into like the last phase of their life, and they're looking at legacy and they're looking at impact. Mm. Um, you know, it's, I think it was Alfred Nobel, wasn't it, that went missing, and um, the press thought he was dead, so they wrote his obituary, and then when he came back. Um, he he read his obituary and re and it just basically just said rich man has died and he mm. realised that he hadn't actually done anything of any worth so that's why he set up the Nobel Prize and mm. so many other initiatives and you know we have a lot of clients like that where you know once once you've got more than a million quid in the bank you can already travel first class everywhere and do all that so then it becomes why are you doing it mm. Is, uh, and that fascinates me in terms of the psychology of a lot of our clients it could be another two hour podcast <laughs> um, but. Um, so, yeah, I'm very proud of the fact that I came to London with nothing and I've built something up. Mm. Um, I'm very proud that I've, I feel I've stayed true to uh, who I am. I think the two things in terms of, you know, other than the fact that I've got a sports car or whatever, you know, mm. I think I'm really proud of the fact that the podcast is doing so well. It's an incredible privilege to, to, to learn from some of these guests. And I really do. The seven or eight sort of really, really strong piece of advice that I've actually got from from the podcast mm. and then the final thing i'd say is my book i always wanted to write a book and it i promised myself one christmas that i'd i'd, I'd write it as a new year's resolution i thought right in january i'm gonna write this book mm. and it's gonna take me a year this is and i started PR. on it that's the one and mm. it took me four miserable years <laughs> uh but i was determined to get it done and i was really really proud when it came out because it was the book that i wanted to read and it was it's very me Hmm. Um, it's quite chatty and you know I just wanted a list of like 100 do's and don'ts like actual things that really work and stuff that don't think things that I've tried in PR that failed but I wanted someone to just write that down like don't do that bit <laughs> um, so yeah I got that I always I always imagine uh, 
I always kind of liken writing a book to running a marathon where, you know, you start running the marathon and the first three or four miles, you're quite excited because you've still got that enthusiasm. You know, you've just started. It's going to be great. People of your family come to see you. And then like the last three or four miles, they're grueling, but you've also, the end is in sight. Mm. You've got something to look forward to. But that mi- that miserable middle bit in the middle. <laughs> I mean, no one says anything about the middle bit. The wall. And, and the book from, I loved writing the book. The idea of it starting, it was great. And the ending, and I'm really proud of it. But I tell you, even though I worked so hard on it, I'd like, I enjoyed the idea of it and the outcome, and I'm, commi- I'm. I also like the fact that I committed to do something and genuinely followed through on it. Mm. But the actual process of writing it was just pure hell. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're proud of the fact that you got to the destination. That's great. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it makes me miserable now to think about it. If I'm honest, <laughs> Final- sometimes I look at it and well, I actually think. I kind of, you know, I'll see a copy of it on a friend's bookshelf or whatever if they've just literally placed it there because they're now coming. <laughs> and, and I'll thumb through it and I think, do you know what? This isn't as terrible as I actually thought it was. It's not actually that bad. Good. That's a nice feeling to have, I'm sure. <laughs> I bet do plenty of people put it on their coffee table when you're coming around then? Is that what happens? My sister does. <laughs> I think I think she does. But other than that, <laughs> uh, but but no. Do you know what? It's, it's, a, it's a calling card. Yeah. I mean, I make... Considering I put four miserable years uh, into my life into that book mm. um, and should have got millions for it, I think I think I make maybe thirty or forty pounds a month from it in right. royalties. I mean, <laughs> you, you couldn't even buy a meal from it. No. But how it's 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 massive as a piece of thought leadership collateral. If you want to get all kind of you know poncy about mm. it and uh, overly pompous, um, it's brilliant. It's really benefited the business and it's it's earned us loads of money indirectly as a mm. calling card it's yeah. great yeah. because i mean if you think about it who wants to who wants to be left with a brochure about why my business is great no one reads those kind of things anymore no. No. and that's that's why thought leadership works if i'm going to write a book it has to be a genuine book with genuine tips in it mm. that's not some kind of brochure masquerading as a book because people can see through that mm. so that was the thing that made it an ordeal in order for me to write a, a book that seemed like a book it, it had to be a book yeah. which means I had to write the damn thing. <laughs> and uh, So I am proud of that, if I'm honest. Mm. Thought leadership collateral, I'm going to remember that phrase. <laughs> I've got loads of terrible <laughs> business phrases. I wish I was around in like, the early 90s when I could use words like proactive and paradigm. Yeah. And it's like, I might start to bring them back now. <laughs> Final question. But I tell you what, though, I, I was going to say, that, that just, to, just to kind of be serious on that point for a second, though, mm. it, you know, there is a serious point now, which is we say this to clients. Look, if you're going to be a thought leader, you need to do the things that thought leaders do. Mm. So you need to have evidence of that. You know, guy, if you're checking out some CEO and he says he's a thought leader and you see nothing about it, mm. that there's no evidence of that. Or he has what I call a graveyard blog where, you know, the, the blog was last updated 18 months ago and was yeah. clearly set up in some fit of enthusiasm by the marketing department and no one gives any a damn about it. Mm. You know, you've got to, you've got to be out there popping up on the radio, popping, speaking and yeah. writing and blogging and podcasting and all these kind of things. And that's the bit. That's what we call thought leadership collateral is if you've got to see some actual evidence, it, it's, it's also it's why we're quite active for our clients on Twitter, because a lot of producers these days go on Twitter and say, OK, this story's in the news. Mm. Who's who's talking about it in an interesting way? Mm. And it's it's not just about churning out a load of generic ghost written tweets about what some CEO is <laughs> doing and welcoming that day's numbers. Mm. It, it, there has to be an element of controversy and a bit of spiciness otherwise why would you even 
why would you even think he's going to be a thought leader? It's a problem we have, actually, with big companies where they don't really want the CEO to say or do anything because mm. it's going to affect the share price. Mm. They say, oh, God, he's, Jeff's going to go and speak at that. He's going to say something, isn't he? And, <laughs> oh, God. You know, they actually would rather he not he or she not do something mm. so we'll write a blog post that's quite spicy and that's going to get some clicks and it's not going to bring the company into disrepute it's not going to um you know it's not going to cause embarrassment but it's going to be challenging mm. that's what genuine thought leadership is about but it'll go to like the compliance team or the marketing department or whatever and they'll they'll turn it into some in, insipid inoffensive mess that mm. they, you know they won't offend anyone but no no one would share it or click on it because it's now boring yeah. and so there's always that little bit of tension there i know that very well from my uh, other hat with my other hat on at the bbc that most chief executives <laughs> their press teams are just terrified that they're going to be put out in front of the camera in an un in, when it's not completely planned to the uh, you know the nth degree so yeah it's, it's a ridiculous because I, I think listeners want authenticity mm. and we're the opposite you know, if a CEO wants the limelight, I say, "Don't be yourself." That's what the, that's what's going to drive clicks and and get people to get to see the real you is to be the real you. Don't mm. don't be. I mean, a client said to me about a couple of years ago, we were writing a blog post. He was reacting to something that had gone wrong in his industry, and he said, "How you know?" I said, "He said, how angry do you want me to be out of ten in tone?" <laughs> uh, out, and I said, "Well, how angry are you really?" And he said, oh, "I'm about a five and a half." I said, we're going at that level. Mm. Don't over-egg it or under-egg it because that's inauthentic and people will mm. see through it. Literally, you being the right level of anger is the bit that most people will share that and think, I agree with him. I think you're right. I think in the age of social media, I think authenticity has become the uh, the key word, hasn't it? Has to be. Mm -hmm. If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> Final question <laughs> then, Paul. Um, and this is this can be anything. So this can be a book or a, another podcast or a TV series that you're watching or a film that you've just watched. What is it that right now or very recently you've been really excited about in terms of something that you've created that you've consumed? That I've consumed? Yeah, so whether it's you've read a book or you've listen to another podcast or you've watched something on tv you just thought wow that was amazing well given that i trained in the law for many years i'm still fascinated by it. a couple of my friends are barristers and um there's a book that's come out recently called the secret barrister and i, I don't know who he or she is but it's absolutely the best book on the the law and the legal system as it's done it's just incredible mm. uh, and it shows our legal system is incredible trouble really um and it's just an, a hugely enjoyable book. I've been, uh, I'm about halfway through. Interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, I don't know, but <laughs> I always, I've, I've found that sometimes I'm in the mood for an audio book and then other times I need it to, on Kindle and other times in is in real life. Mm. So I've started to actually on Amazon buy the audio book and the Kindle version and mm. they sync with each other. So like on a lot of the books I'm reading now, I'll do one chapter with my eyes on a plane, on a physical Kindle. And then I'll, when I'm driving home from the airport, I'll go on to chapter two and have that read to me. And then I'll re physically read chapter three. I don't know anyone else who does that, but it's awesome. And you don't, you don't have to tell Amazon that you're doing that. It just automatically will play the right bit or show you the right bit. And that's, that's where the witchcraft kicks in. Wow. Uh, absolutely. I had no I, idea I that know. happened. It's um, it's a miracle, um, <laughs> and then for some reason, uh, my wife and I have started listening to Ricky Gervais's old podcast from sort of ten years ago, the old ones about oh, yeah. the Guardian and all that. 
Is that with Carl Pilkington and... Yeah. Yeah. You've got to listen to them again, Guy. They are genuinely (laughs) the most... Hilarious. They were, they I mean, honestly, they were I've the pioneering ones, really, weren't they? The um, they were one of the first really successful podcasts, weren't they? It's it, honestly, it's still one of the most funniest things I've ever listened to in my life. I, I still don't know whether Carl is putting it on or not. He <laughs> can't be, but he's, he's just a legend. Some of the stuff he says is so off the wall. <laughs> You, you, you couldn't make it up. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I will do that. I will revisit those Ricky Gervais podcasts. Paul, many thanks for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Great pleasure, Guy. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> <laughs>